Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you from the perpetually smoky mountains of Utah. Today's guest is YA author Aprilyn Pike. Aprilyn burst onto the scene with her debut novel, Wings, which hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list on its second week of release, back in 2009. She's also written the Earthbound series, the Charlotte Westing Chronicles, and the Kingdom of Versailles. I chat with Aprilyn about being a parent as a professional creative, our childhood fears, and where your career goes after you start off at the top. Enjoy my conversation with April and Pike. So you, you're about to send a child off to, uh, off to college for the first time. I am. Well, kind of. My younger son actually is freakily smart and he's a sophomore this year at 16 but he lives at home what i'm about to do is send a child 1500 miles away to live by themselves and feed themselves and get to class without me waking them up and all of that uh, yeah how how is that feeling it's both exciting and sad like i'm so excited for her. she's going to art school how many people ever get to go to art school that's quite cool and like her class list includes things like welding gloves. And I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> so it's a really, really exciting experience. Um, but this particular child uh, got into her freshman year of high school and just crashed, as some people do. It's called puberty. <laughs> and so we pulled her out and she's been doing online school ever since. And then she graduated early and had has had two years to work on her portfolio. She did an art internship in Utah. She probably saw you while she was there. But she's been my project for five years, kind of more so than any of the other kids individually. And and now it's like, shoo, shoo. Are, yes. are, you, are you the type of parent that is kind of like, oh, thank the Lord they're gone? Or are you the type of parent that's like, where is this giant hole in my life? Some of both. I was never the ch- the, the mother who cried when my kids went to kindergarten. I was like, off you go. Someone <laughs> else can feed you lunch and teach you things for six hours a day. And I will be glad when you get home. But sending her off on a very permanent basis is really weird. And knowing that she does not want to live with me anymore. <laughs> and like, that's normal and natural. I didn't want to live with my parents when I was 18. I was like, I am out of here. I was so happy. And that's normal and healthy but I don't have to like it. <laughs> See, I'm I'm the youngest of six, but like I have a large gap between me and the next oldest. So like my memories of my siblings going to college are pretty vague. Like uh, I think that the last one went off to school when I was like 11 or something like that. Oh, wow. And, and so, so like there's this, there was a massive gap where 
I was suddenly an only child for my entire teens. Well, you're barely a person at 11. Right. And then, and then suddenly like, and then when I went off to school, my parents kind of, they kind of made it, it was a big thing. We did like a big cross country trip together. And I spent the entire time in the back of the car, wishing that I was not in the car with my parents (laughs) Um, because I had had that switch click in my brain of, I want to get out of here. I want to be like, I want to be on my own now. And again, normal and healthy. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, you know, a little bit, you know, I look back on that with a little bit of like, wow, I was really an ungrateful git. Oh, the number of times I have apologized to my mother since having children. And one of them was for very loudly expressing that I was ready to move out and leave her house. Even though I had a great relationship with my parents, Mm -hmm. but I was ready to be on my own and do my own thing. See, I I don't feel like, I think I had an okay relationship with my parents, but I didn't have a good relationship with my parents until I like moved out mm-hmm. and was on my own. And, uh, and so, so yeah, I don't, I have no idea what their view on the matter was, but I was, <laughs> a, I, they were both, um, I feel like it would be fair of me to say that I was both a, a total little punk as a teenager, um, but also they kind of did not have any knowledge of how to deal with anything like we didn't find out until i had been away for two years that i had childhood rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. and so there was a, a reason that i was like always tired and i was always complaining when i was a kid so uh, you're not like, talking about the generation gap no no i'm just talking about sheer you know w- kid being just a whiny asshole as a teenager mm-hmm. <laughs> And I don't know, it's a, it's interesting to look at because I don't have children of my own, but like I've got lots of friends with kids and I have siblings with kids. When you have nieces and nephews. Yeah, I've got That's tons. what you just said, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and so like it's, it's weird though to like see kind of how those relationships evolve and, you know, from the outside, like I'm, I'm kind of there because I'm still Uncle Brian, but like, you know, I'm still looking at it from the outside going, oh yeah, okay, so kids, they're so weird. I don't understand these relationships that, you know, parents and children have. And they're different. Um, My 16-year-old, like I said, he's in college. Uh, If I had to send him away to college right now, I would be much more concerned. Um, And I was much more concerned about my daughter until she went and spent about two months in Utah and had like a halfway adult experience. She lived with my sister. She was taken care of well enough, but you know, she had to roll herself out of bed and get to work, you know, some adult experiences. And that I think made both of us more confident in her ability to leave the house. And also she's going to art school. <laughs> they expect, And it's a very small campus, but they expect their art students to be shock the artsy type. Her classes, this is so weird. She has each of her classes once a week mm-hmm. for five hours because it's a studio class. Oh. So you don't want to get into like a big in, uh, uh, showing how to do a technique and then leave 40 minutes later. They sit and they work on stuff for five hours. But it means that if you miss class, you've missed a week of class, which is usually like three class periods, you know. But except for Friday, all of her classes start at one in the afternoon. Oh, that sounds great. And at first I was like, oh, it's because they're at art school. They know their students won't get up on time. And then I thought about it and I went, oh, it's because they're at art school and they know their professors won't get up on time. (laughs) Right, right. Because it's art school. So their professors will have hangovers in the morning. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> the only person more art artsy than art students is art professors. <laughs> yeah, all the art teachers I've ever like come in contact with are always, you know, uh, I mean, maybe it's unfair to say a little bit of a screw loose, but hey, you know, they've all been awesome people. Oh, 13 year old Audrey taking her first community college art class where her instructor told the whole class about his experience with shrooms. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's exactly what I would expect. from Yes. From an art, art As teacher. one does. Right. Oh, man. Have you ever played with uh, kind of, you know, visual mediums at all with art? Not really. I did a lot of drawing when I was little. Um, I thought I was better than I was. Yeah. Uh, I drew a lot of really, really pretty girls, and there was totally no wish fulfillment there. (laughs) I will just say that when I was 12 and I had no breasts, all of my girls had breasts. There was no wish fulfillment there either. (laughs) None. Um, But I was never particularly good. After I had, I guess, a kid or two, so I was a grown-up, ostensibly, I got a book on drawing technique and learned a bit more, and it was amazing how much better I got in, like, three months, but I also had kids, so that didn't last very long, because <laughs> I had kids. But not my calling, but she has been drawing since she was three or four years old. That's cool. Very consistently. That's fun. I'm glad you kind of encouraged that in her from a young age. Yeah. Uh, you know, every every creative professional I talk to kind of has a different experience with, you know, sometimes we talk about their kids, uh, but like often talk about their parents and what their experience was with their parents encouraging or not. Um, and uh, I'm always interested how that kind of relationship plays out. Totally. I was on uh, I was on Brandon Sanderson's live stream just a couple of weeks ago, and he made a comment. He asked me about my parents and being a writer and stuff. And, and I was kind of like, yeah, I'm the youngest of six. They... You know, they kind of were at that point, it was kind of like, oh, you do what you want to do. And they were pretty supportive. Uh, But but he made a comment that we didn't, I actually would love to delve into this a little more with him, but he made a comment about, oh yeah, I was the oldest. And and Uh, it it took him until he showed his mom a check before she would believe that he could really be an author. Well, and I think I saw a comment from him that at that point it immediately changed to, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? Which right. immediately changed into when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? So there's always something that your parents want from you, right? It's that expectations. I I don't know. I find that interesting. Do you do you ever kind of struggle with the with n- not trying to force expectations on your kids? Um, I really really do because I'm I'm kind of a strict parent. Like I will tell you that all four of my children play piano and they practice almost every day and they're very very good um, because I make them be so. Mm-hmm. One of the few rules in our house that all of my children can recite is you uh, live in my house, you eat my food, you practice piano. That's their rent. Um, and so I, I, you know, I do tend to expect my children to excel in whatever they do. But that being said, like my 16 year old, like pretty much every 15, 16 year old boy who enjoys video games and is remotely okay with computers wants to make video games. Yeah. We said, okay, well, major in computer sciences, not because we're really sure he's still going to want to make computer games when he's 22, 23, but because he can do anything from there, computer wise. And so he's he is just remarkably brilliant. I mean, this kid taught himself how to read when he was two. I don't know when he actually learned how to read, but that's when I found out that he could read. So he's just beyond brilliant, which is fun but also weirdly challenging. Also, he's the biggest nerd you ever met. But he uh, 
you know, it was really, it was very tempting to have huge expectations for him beyond what he could do because socially he is absolutely, I mean, if he's a 16 year old socially, that's, that's stretching things. <laughs> um, and so there's a limit to, to what he wants to do. And he will, he's one of those kids that will sometimes be like, I don't want to lose my childhood. And I'm like, the fact that you even like think that way is, is kind of weird. Um, so I need to make sure that, you know, I let my kids be kids while still expecting them to, to put effort into things. Did you, did you have that kind of experience growing up? I did sort of, um, you know, I, I, my mother who is an amazing pianist did not have it in her to make me practice. And so I did not make myself practice because I don't think any child is really that self-motivated. I'm sure there are a handful out there. My children are not four of them. <laughs> um, and I certainly was not one of them. But when I got into high school, I suddenly decided that medals and ribbons were cool. And I pretty much did whatever it took to get a bunch of them. I'm not really sure where that self-motivation came from or how to pass it on to my kids. But I was certainly supported in all of the things I wanted to do. But what was really expected was that I had good grades. I could do all of these extracurriculars, but it was understood that I needed to have good grades because that's how I was going to go to college and that's how I was going to have a good life and all of these things. I felt like my whole life was very tied to college. Yeah, I I kind of, I think that's kind of how my siblings experience all words mm -hmm. that because I remember them doing just tons of extracurricular stuff. And then I came along and I'm like way at the butt end by a long ways. And, and I think that my parents were kind of exhausted by that time. Mm hmm. Like when I just didn't really show any interest in anything, they kind of, I think that, I think that my mom was a little bit panicked of me not having a direction in life, but I think that they were also slightly relieved that they didn't have to, you know, like take me to musicals and sports and all that stuff all the time. So I kind of, I had that, I had, uh, I had to have good grades and I had to do lots of chores and mm -hmm. otherwise I just kind of did my own thing. I'm actually really bad at making my children do chores. That's why they do piano. <laughs> my, my parents, my parents were very good at getting their children to do chores. Oh, my mother too. Like we did a deep clean of the house every week. We had daily chores and we had weekly chores and the weekly list was bigger. And like we got donuts for doing our weekly chores. So it never felt like drudgery to me. Oh man, if like, I boy. had gotten donuts. Okay, mom, if right? you're listening and you <laughs> ever go back in time to do my like teens again, offer me donuts every week for chores because that will totally do it. Yeah. Our house was always very, very clean, but <laughs> not like the, you can't walk into it clean. Yeah. Especially yeah. because the kids cleaned it. So, you know, sometimes the bathrooms were questionable, but they right. definitely had a rag washed over them. Yeah. Clean ish. Clean ish. Yeah. And I was never very good at that. <laughs> so at what point did the writing start for you? So, the writing to me is different than the making up of stories because the making up of stories is something I don't remember when I wasn't doing it and when I wasn't known for it. Um, and not only making up stories, but putting on costumes and acting them out in my head and like not acting them out in a cute way that people could clap for, but like mm -hmm. floating around the yard, talking to myself and making big gestures in ways that made people think that maybe I belonged somewhere else. <laughs> so that happened a lot. And I was, I was a good writer in that I could write essays in English and I could always get a good grade in essays uh, or in my English classes. But 
writing, writing. I mean, I, I guess I started trying to write my first book when I was like a junior or senior and I got like 30 handwritten pages in and that was it. And I didn't really do writing seriously again until I was in college. And I actually started out college as a pre-med major. I wanted to be um, in OBGYN um, and eventually discovered that I was not as good at science as I thought I was. Strange coming from a tiny Idaho school where like I just slept through half the science classes <laughs> and turns out you have to really be good at chemistry to pass your MCATs. And I was terrible at chemistry. And so I looked around and I thought, well, my parents told me get a degree. That was it. They didn't say get a pre-med degree. They didn't say get a science degree or a math degree. They said get a degree. And I looked around and I said, what has always come easy to me? This was my whole thought process. And I just happened to be going to a college that was one of the few colleges in our in Idaho that offered a bachelor's degree in creative writing. And I, there are a lot more now, but back then it was kind of new. Um, and I switched my major in the middle of my uh, freshman year and I never looked back. That's cool. I, I had uh, really wished that when I was in school that they had offered a uh, creative writing degree because I, I just did a basic English major and mm -hmm. I took a lot of creative writing classes for my electives, but, uh, but a creative writing degree probably... I don't know. I, I guess I just, I feel like I would have been more invested in myself as a student if I was doing that kind of thing. Maybe. You probably took as many creative writing classes as I did. I took a lot of literature classes. My minor was in drama. So when I had the chance, I took things like history of drama, history of theater, I guess. Anyway, um, I actually had one paper that I switched all of the references to literature to yeah. theater. And I turned in a Shakespeare paper in my Shakespeare class and in my history of theater class. I wrote them both. They were both mine and original. But these days with the way they like scan them in for plagiarism, I'm not sure that that would have passed merit. I have no idea. They didn't do that sort of thing when I was younger. I don't think they did that when I was in school either. I mean, you're only just a few years older than me. Yeah. Um, so we probably had a pretty similar experience. But yeah, I turned in the same paper with a couple of changes from literature to theater for two classes my senior year and got an A on both papers. Yes. <laughs> no, that's really cool. And and you you already had kids by the time you were publishing, right? I did. Yeah. Um, in fact, I finished, well, the thing that obviously you know, but I, I think a lot of aspiring authors don't know is how many books most authors write before they get published. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I'd had an agent um, that I wrote three books to get an agent and then she shopped one of my books and it just totally crashed the fail bus and I wrote her another book and I finished it like a week before I had a baby because <laughs> I was like if I don't get this done before I give birth it's never going to get done um, and then my baby was two weeks late so I wish I would have you know maybe dragged it out a little longer <laughs> maybe done it sooner he would have come sooner I don't know anyway karma but uh, so I was I was on the second book with my agent and my third child before I got my first contract. And yeah. I had been working on that for coming up on three years by that point, which is kind of short, actually. Um, I didn't have to write for five to 10 years before mm -hmm. getting a contract. And a lot of writers do. So so you have you know, you've got a bunch of little kids 
you're you know so you're a mom and suddenly you have your first book hit number one on the times list yeah it was crazy did your life just kind of explode the biggest thing that happened is the whole process of me getting an agent getting a publisher and getting my first book out happened while my husband was at law school Mm -hmm. and they call the spouses of law school students law school widows because you just don't see your spouse for three years. And um, we, my husband had an office at our house and I said, I would really like you to study at home. And I promise to leave you alone if you do that. So many, many, many hours with him locked in our bedroom with me wrangling children. Um, so the biggest change that happened was after I got my contract in the middle of his second year, he didn't look so hard for a job when he graduated and he took two years off. So I had a stay-at-home husband and that was supremely helpful, especially because I ended up having a very high maintenance child. So between the two of us, we had him taking a couple of years off school and me working at home. um, And between the two of us, we managed to be about a parent and a half. (laughs) Which is pretty solid for a writer and a law student. Yeah, yeah. I think it worked. So so the book I was referencing was Wings and that yeah. was that turned into a series, right? Like it uh, did. How, how many books you did you end up in that? Uh, that's a more complicated question than you know. So there are four <laughs> books published by HarperCollins and um, YA publishing is notoriously volatile and readers tend to follow series rather than authors. And so if you have a successful series and you're like, here's my next series and I've learned as an author and it's better and it's awesome. And here you go. And they're like, I liked the last one, <laughs> which is great because I had a lot of readers who really loved wings, but, uh, I had my, actually, I was starting my third series and the second series had come out right when paranormal was like, So it did not do well. Um, It went out of print and I got my rights back within like two years of it coming out. It was was a spectacular failure and uh, that's okay. So I was starting my third series with a different publisher. And in order to remind my Wings readers that I was around, I started writing a companion book on Wattpad and I would release a chapter every week with the intention. And eventually I did do this of finishing just like a month before glitter came out. So it was, it was advertising. Um, and five years on, uh, with like no advertising at all, it continues to be one of my best selling books, but I put that one out on my own and, um, it's been received well enough and I've had enough requests for a sixth one that I'm writing a sixth one this fall. So there are five books in that series right now, and there will be a sixth one. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I mean, I don't know if you mind tugging at that thread at all, but but kind of the life of a writer, uh, the the career of a writer can be rather volatile because like we we said, you you started off with a number one New York Times bestseller Mm -hmm. and then and then struggling to kind of keep going with sales on a sequel series or not a sequel, but uh, but on your next series. The, the second series, yeah, yeah, that, and that's that's kind of wild because you'd think in most in most uh, in most uh, like professions, if you come out the gate swinging <laughs> and you hit every home run, then your career is probably made. Well, especially if you keep working and producing 
product and meeting deadlines like that's all you have to do but with with an author it's it's very different very different um I'm going to do an impression for you here, and it's it's done with love. One of the first events that I did after we moved to Arizona, my book came out. I did touring all over the place. While I was out of the state, my husband, uh, this is not a surprise, like I, I knew he was moving, moved out of state with my children. And so I could, literally came home to a new house. It was very exciting. Um, so one of the first events that I did in Arizona was with Diana Gabaldon. And... Like, I didn't know anyone. I was like, Diana, gobble, dabble, sure. I had no idea who she was. Um, and she was already quite famous at this point. This was this was uh, 12 years ago, but she was already quite famous. And uh, she gets a question from a panel, and she's like, uh, my books came out, and they were very small, and they've grown, and that's exactly how I would like it to go. There's nothing worse than having a book come out and just hit the list right away because then you have nowhere to go but down. She has this very proper, not quite British accent. She's lovely. Yeah. Um, and like she turns to me to give the next answer. She had no idea who I was. And I said, hi, I'm April Lynn Pike and my debut novel just came out and hit the list. <laughs> you know, what are you supposed to do from there? And I don't remember what else. But I was like, so I guess we'll see what happens. And in some way, she was right, because there wasn't a lot of places to go except down. Um, but boy, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> I wouldn't trade it. Yeah. And it gives me a world to come back to. You know? Yeah, for sure. And and it is a cool experience to kind of go through. I Because um, I was actually going to ask you uh, whether... The, so... So genres within kind of the writing community, you kind of, you get a little bit of a feel um, for what, what kind of genres will keep fans and will keep doing well, you know, kind of notoriously, well, in a good way, uh, epic fantasy tends to have a really good tail on it. So, um, and, and keep selling reasonably well over years. Um, but from everything I've heard, YA tends to be big splash. And then after a few years, you are not making any royalties. Have you had that experience? And vice versa. It can be like mid-level, sort of barely getting published. And then you have a big breakout again, five or six years after that. Um, so I just got all of my rights for my books from Harper back, except for the Wing series. Um, I already got, I told you about the series that went out of print with Razorbill. Um, and I'm working on getting rights back from my Random House book because it has met the threshold too. Um, but I'm pretty proactive about that because my husband and I own a book packager that mm-hmm. does 90% my stuff. <laughs> but we have this this IP company and we actually had our first foreign rights sale the other day. Woohoo, go us. Um, but he redesigns all of my covers and puts them out and we've got i think this will be our ninth book with our little company um our company did the little comic book that isaac stewart illustrated a couple of years ago that was our non me book but it was kenny did the text there and isaac did the pictures um so i'm a bit more proactive about if if my books are flagging i ask for them back and i put them out under my name or under my company umbrella 
Um, but my wing series is completely earned out and earned out in multiple company in multiple countries. So I still make some money on that series every year. Yeah, that's good. That's that's cool. I I'm I'm always interested in how all of that works because it's it's uh, for for people even for people within writing within the publishing industry. It's a weird industry. Mm-hmm. There's lots of complications. There's lots of contracts going in different directions. And, you know, like when, when you, I've been doing this for what, eight, nine years now, and I'll still get questions. I'll get an email from a random person saying, Hey, why isn't your book out in my country? Even though mm-hmm. it's, you know, even though it's a predominantly English speaking country, I, I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know the intricacies of those of how those rights work. And it's, it's weird how all of that overlaps and, and how, if you really, I I, like, like knowing that you kind of are, are so aggressive about keeping track of that stuff. And, uh, and, and I correct me if I'm wrong, you, you act as your own agent as well, right? Uh, Both myself and my husband, my company is represents me right now. um, Except for, like my film rights are still with my agent, Mandy Hubbard. Mm-hmm. So she has um, my, my agency that I had while I was doing wings. When I left them, they relinquished all of their rights as soon as they expired. So they don't have to do that. It was very nice so that I don't have to go to like six different places to check on all of my rights. So like film rights, once they expired with Disney for wings, um, my agent just said, go ahead and take them and sell them where you are. Um, and so Mandy does my film rights for wings and actually all of my books. She does film rights for all of my books and then foreign rights for glitter, which she mm-hmm. sold. Um, but assuming I get glitter back, I will have print rights again with my IP. So it's, it's all kind of confusing and businessy. It is, it's a, but it's a lot to keep track of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I, I, I still, I, I do have an agent that I love and she, but I, and I try to kind of keep on top of what they're doing with things. And even I feel like I can't quite keep track of it all. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's incredible that you're kind of able to stay on top of that. And I'm glad you do. Cause a lot of authors, I think, uh, it's easy to say, oh, that's a thing I did years ago. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. Yeah. But they're, I mean, they're, uh, not only can you make it more accessible to your readers? But there are little pennies to pick up here and there. Um, at this point, it's really interesting because I spent about 10 years being the primary breadwinner for our family. Uh, I paid off three postgraduate degrees. My husband came out of law school, <laughs> master's degree and PhD with no school debt. We paid off our house um, and then also had people like living with us. And I financed all of that with my book career for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And now my book money is kind of pin money. (laughs) So it's really weird. I mean, I have been really high and I am fairly low right now, but I'm in a place where my husband has a job now at 40. He has his, you know, his his only first full-time job. Um, In fact, the first time I had to go to like urgent care, uh, I was like, what is this insurance thing? Whoa, it's the kind that actually helps us because we had to like <laughs> barely meet the legal requirement for a while, which a lot of authors have because we don't have. Oh, yeah. Joy. I mean, that's a whole nother hour of conversation is how hard it is to have health insurance as an author. Um, you certainly know about that because you have a, a chronic. Oh, man. 
issue. Chronic is the wrong. Chronic means it's going to kill you. Does it? I, I. What's the word there? Persistent something. You have you have rheumatoid arthritis, buddy. Right, right. I've. I think chronic. <laughs> right. I thought chronic just meant that it was. I. I thought it just meant that it just is going to keep going. Maybe it does. I don't. I don't remember. I don't know. Someday, Brian, you're going to die. You know what? I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, not. I'm not in an eager way. I'm just okay with it. Yes. Someday it's going to happen. Yeah. It's, you know, it happens to the best of us. Right? This is that middle-aged mellow. Someday. Right, right. Getting to the point where it's sooner rather than later. Mm. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So as as you continue writing... Um, now I know you have a book out, uh, pretty recently. Yes. Um, that's heat, right? Yes. And that is a new YA. New YA paranormal. It is actually, it has the same feel as wings. It's that paranormal romance where you have a real world setting and a mythical creature that I've made up just my own kind of mythology for, in this case, it's dragons and um, if you're at all familiar with wings, with wings, I really melded my mythology closely with fairies and plants. And with dragons, it's dragons and fire. Um, so I've taken something that's very familiar, you know, and then really melded it together and and set it in the real world. And, you know, have my little kick-ass heroine who sometimes punches people in the face and sometimes kicks them in the knee and She's pretty great. (laughs) Do you, do you like writing for teens? I really do. Um, I like to do other things as well. I have a lot of back burner adult projects. Um, In fact, I have, I have a really, really long-term epic fantasy that I've been talking about for about eight years now. And the first book is done and it's about a quarter of a million words. It needs a good edit and polish on it. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, it's the first of three interconnected trilogies. Yeah. So it's nine books. I know what happens in all of them. I'm so freaking excited about it, but I'm not really ready in my life to write it yet. So getting there. But I, I have a lot of back burner projects that are adult. Um, but right now, I, I really do like writing for teens because they're so immediate and they're so uh, angsty is probably an overused word, but like 
They're on this emotional roller coaster, and it's really fun to write highs and lows, and teenagers live in the highs and lows. See, weirdly, that was what I hated about being a teenager. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the idea of writing that kind of makes my eye twitch a little bit. And see, I don't know that I existed so much in the highs and lows as some people. I was, you know, a pretty run-of-the-mill nerd. But I certainly like to read about people living in the highs and lows, you know? What, what is it that, uh, what is it that kind of, that kind of gets, gets its claws in in you with that? I think the ability to just run off and attempt to save the day without calling someone to watch your kids. There are so many just run of the mill life responsibilities that adults have. And this is also why I think a lot of, of, um, main characters in adult novels don't have children. Mm Mm-hmm. Or are the wealthy kind who have a constant nanny, child watcher, something, depending on whether you're writing fantasy or, or real life, and can just run off and save the day or run off and be in trouble or get in trouble and not have someone an hour later being like, mommy, are you coming home? You don't have that as a teenager. At worst, when you come home after having left to go save the day and you come home with bloodstains on your shirt, you're gonna, going to get grounded. But you're not going to come home to a child who ate poison and died because you weren't home. Right. right. So there's a spontaneity we don't have as adults. <laughs> yeah. What do you, when you're, when you're writing, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, was um, when you're writing kind of teen characters, what kind of, what kind of relationships with their own adults, their own parents or relatives or whatever, what do you like to kind of develop and along that? Cause it's, it's easy to kind of give the whole, it's easy to do the Bambi thing, right? Of just, mm-hmm. Oh, just, Oh, bam. The one of the mom's dead or the dad's dead or, or they're an orphan or whatever. Um, you know, it's easy to do that. Cause then you take that out of the picture. Do you, is that the route you go or do you play with that a little bit more? Um, Almost never. This is something I've consciously done. Um, Not only did I have a good relationship with my parents, at least a small majority of the teenagers I knew also did. And despite what I think popular media would tell you, I think that most kids and most, again, even if it's only a small majority, that's still most kids do have a decent relationship with their parents. And so I've worked really hard to never have my adults be the bumbling idiots or unless it's important to the story, like the cruel disciplinarians. Um, I work really hard on making my teenage characters' relationships with the adults in their lives feel real and particularly feel positive. Um, In my Second Wings book, after Laurel's parents find out that she's a fairy, her dad is like, this is awesome. It's like fairy tales. And her mom is like, I'm a trained naturopath and I'm, I mean, she's a little bit woo, but she's also science. And she's like, this just flies in the face of everything that I know. And she really has a hard time with it. And they're both trying, but it's very awkward. And Laurel feels rejected because that's who she is. Who she is is being rejected by her mom. And her mom is like, this is my daughter. Nothing has changed. But now I know this mind-blowing thing about her. So it doesn't mean that everything is always happy, you know. But I wanted to feel real and like everyone's at least trying to have a relationship. 
Um, I do have one one book where I just killed the parents, but that was really important to the plot. And then she goes and lives with um, an aunt. And then I had another adult relationship to work with. They don't know each mm-hmm. other well. You've got this person who is grieving for her parents, has major survivor's guilt because she survives a plane wreck that her parents die in. And they're trying to get to know each other while they live together. So I really really work on making my adults not idiots and the relationships feel real and with everyone at least trying. That's, that's good. Cause I, I, it definitely, when you, when you mentioned the, every adult is a bumbling idiot thing, that is my least favorite thing about kind of the teen hero is that, is that that tends to happen by necessity um, with, with most of those teen hero books. Um, and it, kind of drives me a little nuts because I think that I think a little more work can be put into why adults aren't attentive to a certain situation um, rather than, Oh, they're all just stupid adults. Yes, exactly. And because, because adults, one of those things that kind of uh, drives me nuts as an adult looking back is, is realizing how complicated it is to be an adult versus be a teenager. And, yeah. and that whole lack of context that teenagers by nature have, uh, it just, it, it drives me a little nuts in the fiction that we get. Exactly. And one of the, the few areas of conflict that I ever had with my parents was like coming home late or not letting them know where I was and not understanding why they were so frustrated with me. They're like, we had no idea where you were. You hang out with older kids who drive you all over the place and there's four feet of snow on the ground and you don't have a cell phone because this is pre-cell phones. And they were like, we were worried. And I'm like, I was fine. What's the problem? You know, but it's a problem. <laughs> well, and I think that's a, it's an interesting thing because I, when I was a kid, we didn't talk about things like depression or anxiety and things like that. But like, I now look back at that and realize, oh, when I was out late without, without calling, of course, my parents were anxious. You know, they Mm -hmm. weren't necessarily, they, they weren't furious at me and they weren't like, they weren't trying to control me. They were just super anxious about their kid being somewhere they didn't know about. And, and I totally get that now. Uh, but you know, as a kid, you're like, oh, come on, please just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. I'll be home before dawn, you know? Uh, but. And of course you were immortal. You were never going to die. And, and that drives, you know, half of the crazy things that kids do complete unawareness of comp of consequences, which is also fun to write about. (laughs) See, I was a very chill kid. Um, I, you know, my being bad was just kind of you know, staying out late playing video games at a friend's house. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, my five older siblings, um, at least some of them were way worse than me and were doing much worse things. And, and so I kind of had that like holdover of my parents just (laughs) not trusting me because of course you don't trust a teenager. Yeah. Uh, But so speaking of, of kind of being immortal. So I know that you love to go paddleboarding. I walked right into that, didn't I? <laughs> you do. You did. Um, so I, you, you live in Florida. I do. Right on the coast. Right on the beach. Right on the and beach. Pretty close. You go. 
you go paddleboarding, and uh, so for for the listeners, um, April and I are in a chat group together, and she will often say, "Oh, I went out and I was you know several miles off the coast," and I am convinced that one day you're just going to disappear, and we'll never know what happened. But you love going out paddleboarding, and I want you to tell me about about that. Okay, so um, I. I literally went paddleboarding once before I moved to Florida and I was seven months pregnant and I could barely stay up on the board. And for some reason, that tiny taste of paddleboarding, I was totally hooked. And so when we moved here, I kept talking about it. And I'm also, I'm terribly, terribly cheap. And so I'm looking on Amazon and I'm like, I can get an inflatable paddleboard for less than $200. And then I can take it and try it. And if I still like it, then maybe in like a year or two, I can upgrade to something better. And my husband looked at me and said, I'm not going paddleboarding with you. So if I'm going to send you anywhere paddleboarding alone, you're going to have a good paddleboard. It's not going to be able to get a hole in it and deflate. And you're going to spend decent money on it. And I was like, okay. If you say so, but like, he seriously had to be like, this is your budget. This is your minimum. And this is your maximum. You must spend at least this much on a paddleboard. Go talk to the guy, tell him what you want to do and listen to what he says. So I have a really nice paddleboard. It is 11 and a half feet long, which is much Mm -hmm. taller than me and three feet wide. So it is, it's like a kayak with no sides. It's huge and it's solid, so it's not inflatable. So I had somebody ask me one time, what if a shark comes up and bites your board? I'm like, one, that, that's not how sharks are, sharks are shaped. But two, it wouldn't matter. I would still float. Um, but I do, I do go out uh, a maximum of three miles from shore, but only if the wind is good. I make a major study of the wind and the tide and the current before I go out. But I've set that minimum or that maximum, excuse me, that maximum at three, because even I I can paddle for two, two hours solid if I have to, to get back. If Mm. conditions just turn really bad, I would be very sore the next day, but I could do it. And so I know that I can rescue myself at three miles out and that's important. So I really do try to be safe, but I go out and there is a lot of wildlife in the ocean and I have seen lots and lots of sharks. And what, when we, when you're talking about the sharks that I see, like they're three to six feet long, they could probably bite my leg. That's it. Um, so they're not very big and they're very skittish. And the ones that are big and would bite you are rare to be seen and they usually stay deep. So if they're on the surface, they're probably not going to bite me. Probably. Do you, um, okay. So I, I don't like, so I have a huge fear of deep water, like to the point where when I was a little kid, I remember going up the street to a friend's house to go swimming in their pool and it was nine feet deep. And I thought that was terrifying. (laughs) And, and I think I was probably, I probably was in my late teens before even swimming in a deep pool didn't make me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, how, how do you handle that? <laughs> I don't have that fear. Going out into the ocean. Like my mother has that fear as well. And um, our friend Dan talked about his wife, Dawn, how she doesn't even want to be in knee deep water. If she can't see the bottom. And 
the ocean water near my house is cloudy. You cannot see through it more than maybe six feet on a good day. So that's both a blessing and a curse. I wish that I could see farther. I wish that I could look down and see like 15 feet of what's below me. But on the other hand, I can't see what's below me. (laughs) So I have no idea. I have no idea how deep the water is when I'm out past about half a mile. No clue because I can't see. I can't see anything. Um, So anything that I do see has come up quite close or it's jumping out over the surface. Um, so as far as I, as far as I can tell visually, it's no deeper three miles out than it is a block out because I can't see the bottom. See, I, uh, it's weird because I am, I'm not religious. I'm not superstitious, but there is a part of my brain that belie- absolutely 1000% believes that Cthulhu is immediately underneath me. Mm-hmm. If there, if there's dark water, but see, we all have something like that. It's terrifying. I don't, I don't know how people in general deal with that. I'm much better now, but up until I was about 25, I would have little panic attacks if I was outdoors in the dark and it wouldn't always catch me. Like camping would be fine, but I would walk out to my car in the parking lot of my apartment and it would strike me. And my heart would get going and I would go into fight or flight and sprint all the way back to my apartment, get in the apartment, break out in a sweat and like have to shake my hands out because I don't know, in my head, someone was going to get me, you know, and it's not based on anything. I've never been attacked in the dark. I'm luckily, woohoo. There we go. But, uh, but that irrational fear, when it hits you, it hits you. And I don't think we have any control over it. So don't go paddleboarding. Yeah, I, I'm not intending on it. At least not deep in the ocean. <laughs> no, no, I can I can do lakes. I think just fine and rivers, obviously. But mm-hmm. man, uh, but ocean water definitely terrifies me. Well, and when I have people come visit and I want to take them out to spot manatees and dolphins and and herons and stuff, I take them on our river instead of the ocean, and I take them in kayaks because you can learn how to kayak yeah. in five minutes if you never have. But people also feel safer in kayaks. But you can still go out and see all the cool stuff. I live on, it's not exactly, it's kind of an island. It's called a barrier island. So it's a really long, skinny, it's about a mile wide, long, skinny island with ocean on one side and a river on the other, but it's brackish water. So all the saltwater animals still live there. In fact, you're more likely to see dolphins in the river than the ocean. Oh, that's kind of cool. So yeah, if you ever come visit, I'll take you in a kayak. I, I can do kayaking. That's totally fine. Um, and the river is never more than about eight feet deep and often less. When I was a, when I was a kid, I, uh, my parents would take us, uh, canoeing, uh, every summer just on local rivers. And I remember, uh, there was a spot in this very lazy little river that we were in that, uh, that we would stop and all the kids would kind of just take off their clothes and jump in and we'd all just go swimming for an hour. Um, while mom and dad, you know, had a snack in the canoe kind of thing. And I remember at one point, uh, I I was standing on something that was almost certainly just a a sharpish log, but in my brain, I, I was getting into dinosaurs at the moment. And in my brain, it was absolutely, um, a, like the, the, the plates of a stegosaurus that I was standing on. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. See, that's Brian imagination right there. Yeah. Like my, I can, all of that, all those little fears and things. It's funny. Cause I would, uh, as a kid, as a kid that was scared of pretty much everything. 
um, I always used, I would, I, there was a point at which I would, l- I learned to use my imagination to counter itself oh. to counter the fears. Um, I, I remember, okay. And this is going to show you just how much of a little scaredy cat I was, but I was terrified of, uh, men in black when it came out because of the aliens in it. Ooh, yeah. Um, I, I found them very scary. Because they were hiding among us. Yeah, exactly. No, it was terrifying. And uh, and I don't remember how old I was. I, I was probably, I don't know, 11 or something like that. So at the age when right. I probably shouldn't have been scared of everything. Um, but I, I remember countering that in my own head by saying, okay, but if the aliens show up, obviously I will have a massive gun to deal with them. Obviously. And so it'll be okay. And it's 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 funny how the human brain kind of deals with itself sometimes because mm-hmm. that's that's how I dealt with that fear. Did you did you have like a, a like childish fears when you were a kid other than the the dark? You know, I think I was mostly fearless of everything because I spent a lot of summers on my grandparents' ranch and we were all over the place and we definitely saw a lot of rattlesnakes and uh lizards and lots of animals uh definitely like wolves from a distance um there were a lot of guns around here and there Uh, i say that like there were guns everywhere there were occasionally guns around um but even things like dealing with farm machinery and uh, building homemade dams in the creek so we could make it deep enough to swim and we were always cutting ourselves. So there was a lot of blood. One thing I've never been skittish about is blood. So I feel like I was such an adventurer at the, during those formative years between about eight and 13. Um, And then I moved to a teeny tiny town where I didn't have city things to be afraid of. I think that kids who grow up in cities learn a healthy respect for the dangers that come with a large population in, in an urban area. And I certainly didn't have any of that. Um, in fact, when we, when we first moved to this little town, I managed to get myself in trouble because uh, nobody locked their doors. And I latched on to the first group of kids that let me sit with them at lunch. And uh, they went into, they drove around until they found a big house with no cars in the driveway and went in their unlocked door, front door and robbed the house. So I accidentally robbed a house when I was 14. Uh, they didn't take very much, a big like Costco sized bag of M&Ms and some swords, for, a sword from the wall, like a decorative sword. And then I'm sure that they looked around and pocketed money when I didn't realize what was happening. But I'm standing there with my hand on the doorknob and this guy goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, what? And he walks over in his hooded sweatshirt and rubs off the doorknob because I was leaving my fingerprints. So, yeah. And I had no idea what was going on. And I was like, we were back in the car and off. And I was like, did we just rob a house? (laughs) So, yeah. Lulu's 14 year old me. In small town, Idaho. It was very exciting. Oh, there's nothing else to do in Idaho. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Uh, I I went, uh, my brother's, my brother's in-laws are from Idaho. And I went with him to visit them not long after he got married. And I was still a little kid. Um, Oh, gosh. I want to say Pocatello, but I don't, I don't 100% remember. That sort of area, though. Eastern Idaho. Yeah. Oh, maybe it was, what's the, what's the one that's something falls? Uh, Idaho Falls. Idaho Falls. I think it was Idaho Falls, actually. Yeah. 
that's all Eastern Idaho. There's Eastern Idaho, the part around um, Boise and the Panhandle, which is in its own time zone. Yeah, it was. Uh, but that was an experience because the, his his new his new ish brother in law took us out uh, digging, um, which is like, I guess you get an old truck and you just drive the crap out of it through the mountains. We call that mudding. Yeah, I think th- I think they called it digging. Okay, w- what they told me, but yeah, because <laughs> your tires dig into the the yeah, gravel and yeah. like that. Um, but that was terrifying doing that in the dark with somebody I had <laughs> literally just met and my older brother. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, that Idaho is an interesting place. <laughs> it is such an interesting place. <laughs> now you've got your cowboys and you've got your people in Boise who really think they're a big city, and then you go up north and uh, like I went to a college that was in a nice uh, uh, pretty artsy town and we were half an hour maybe an hour from Coeur d'Alene where all the white supremacists were and it was just like this is quite a place we don't even have very many people and it's quite a place yeah (laughs) Idaho quite a place so what are you working on next so next I am working I'm probably going to be working concurrently on um, the sequel to Heat and my next Wings book, which is called Salt. So Heat and Salt. One word titles work really well. They fit in tweets. I, I was just about to say, you're very into one word titles. <laughs> Almost all of my books are one word titles. Um, so I'll be working on those concurrently. And then I'm in the first like five days of a short story Kickstarter that um, is for an anthology that it's all going to be noir stories. And like, I agreed to do it and I'm totally terrified of writing a noir story, but uh, uh, it looks like it's going to fund and I'm going to have to do that. And I'm going to have my main character be Tammany, who is my by far most popular character um, of all of my worlds. Oh, that's very cool. So give the fans what they want. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I like to end this podcast by asking everybody, um, What's the last meal that blew your mind? Oh, let's see. The last meal that blew my mind. I cook for myself 99% of the time. Um, I really like to cook and we don't. What's the last thing? What's the last thing that you still think about sometimes? Maybe even just something that you really want to make again soon. Um, Actually, you know what? We, um, We drove to D.C. for kind of a fly by night trip. We drove up. We stayed three days. We drove back. Um, my husband's brother just moved up there and he just had a baby. Um, so we went up to see his baby and, uh, they had a baby after, uh, about seven years of not being able to have one. So we're very, very excited for them, but we went and saw all of the, the sites in DC and all the museums, especially, Oh, really enjoyed that. When, when you're little, like museums are dumb and when you're an adult, somehow they're, they're now amazing. Um, but I do the driving in my house. I really like to drive, but we're driving back. And so in five days, I've already driven about 25 hours, maybe 30, because you drive an hour every time you go anywhere in D.C. Mm. And we stopped and we went to Chili's. And I was like, I need a hamburger. And so they bring me out this huge hamburger with like onion rings on it and everything. And we start eating and Kenny's helping the kids get their food. And he turns around and he goes, didn't you get a hamburger? (laughs) (laughs) I pointed at my mouth and he's like, it's gone. And it was the most delicious hamburger I'd had in a very long time. So there, there's a meal that I still think about. And I 
absolutely hoovered it after about 30 hours of driving within five days. Yeah, that'll that'll do it. Oh, mm-hmm. man. A good burger is just, oh, it just hits the spot. I don't yeah. know what it is that's about a good burger that just, mm, man, I love it. But that is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And it's good to actually talk to you in person rather than just chatting online. Right. That's what we do most of the time these days. Right. It's all of us. That was YA author Aprilyn Pike. Thanks again to Aprilyn for taking the time to come chat. You can find links to her social media and some of her books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmccollin.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.